All right, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Oh, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. As you're turning there, let's just reflect for a minute on last Sunday here at First Baptist. It was a good day to be at First Baptist Church in Harrisburg. Uh, it was a special day, I think. What a joy it was to be together like that in the presence of the Lord, to hear his word, to sing his praises, to remember the body and blood of Jesus through the bread and the cup, and it was a good day. And reflecting on that all week has made me look forward to being together with you today, because guess what? We're going to do the same things today, right? It's the same things today. We're going to sing his praises. We're going to hear from his word, and other than taking the supper together, it's no different from last week, and we're going to lean in and expect that God will use those very normal, ordinary means that he has given to us in his word namely his word and his people and the singing of his praises, to do a great work in us yet again. Um, we, we will lean into that and trust him to meet with us today. When we opened to Second Peter last week, we saw Pastor Peter calling the people to remember. Like that was the theme of last week, remember, remember. We also saw his declaration that he wants to leverage his whole life. He wants to leverage his whole ministry to position those people to be able to remember. He even stated that once he is gone, he wants the people to be able to call these things to mind. He wants to be doing a work that leaves a legacy so that even when he's gone, those people will be remembering these important things. He wants them to know the truth. He wants them to cherish the truth. He wants them to live out that truth, which is so important. He wants them to be ready and to stand firm in the truth and avoid the damning heresies of these false teachers. Pastor Peter loves these people, and therefore he cares about their souls. And I told you last week that your pastors care about you. We love you. And so we care about your souls. We pray, we preach for the good of your souls. And we might not have much time left. You may remember in the text last week, Pastor Peter says, the days are coming to an end, right? Doesn't know how much longer he'll be in this tent. But he wants to leverage every moment he's got with them for the good of their souls and for the glory of God. And we want to do the same thing. We know that there are all kinds of lies. We know that there are all kinds of liars out there. And so we seek to establish you in the truth so that you too can stand firm. So by way of application last week, I encourage you to set a reminder to create daily rhythms of discipline in your life to keep God's word in your mind, to be regularly reading God's word, memorizing God's word, meditating on God's word, sharing God's word, listening to God's word, to have these regular reminders built into the pattern of your life so that you don't forget because without discipline, we will forget, right? Without reminders, we will forget. And we don't ever want to forget what the Lord has done for us. We also talked about the importance of embracing the old, old story. And being wary of those who would come along and say, I've got a new thing that's different from the old thing. And it will give you what the old thing could never give you. If somebody comes along and says they've got something better than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you, you know you can't trust them. Because there is nothing better than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So lean into the old, old story. Rejoice in it and repeat it and remember it and beware of a new thing. And then at the end of application last week, I, I asked you to make a leap with me uh, that is an important leap and one that we will see come up again in the text today. That all of this remembering that Pastor Peter is calling the people to is not merely a scholastic exercise. right? It's not just remembering and recalling of facts remembering and recalling details. He wants their lives to be impacted by all of this. You may remember I shared a quote from Douglas Moo uh, that helped us make that leap. I'll share a different one with you this week that comes from Jim Shaddix when he says, 
Peter's purpose here has an earthly implication. He doesn't want Christians to have a mere intellectual recollection of gospel truths. He's concerned, along with other biblical writers, that believers can functionally forget even the most basic truths of the gospel, even though they can recite them in their minds. That's a real danger for folks like us, that we can functionally forget even the most basic gospel truths, even though we can recite them with our mouths and in our minds. There's more here than just a scholastic exercise of recall. We want to see these truths take deep root in our lives and work their way out in our lives. So we don't just know the word, right? We don't just hear the word. We are called, as James says, to do the word. And we're going to see a lot of that in the text today. This week we're going to start into a passage that's going to take us two weeks. It's, it's yet another one of these examples in 2 Peter where there's a big thought that has a bunch of different parts and, and, and we just can't do it justice to try to do it all in one shot. And so today will be part A and next week will be part B uh, in, this, in this text. Remember, before we get into the text, that the issue in 2 Peter is not persecution from the outside like it was in 1 Peter. Right? In First Peter, he's equipping these people to withstand the heat of persecution that is coming and going to come from the outside. In Second Peter, the threat he is addressing comes from within. There are false teachers who are rising up and leading the people astray into a variety of damning heresies. And so Peter is taking pains to ground these people in the truth so that they can stand firm and continue to walk the path of faithfulness that leads to life. We know that one of the ways the false teachers are approaching the people is by dismissing Peter's preaching as myth or story or fable. So in this passage, Peter's going to play some defense. And he's going to defend the message that he's been preaching by calling witnesses, like in a courtroom. And this week we're going to see him call the first witness, which will be himself and the other apostles, as eyewitnesses and earwitnesses to these things. He's basically going to say, this, this is not myth. This is not fable. I was there. I saw these things and I heard these things. I heard God the Father speak of God the Son on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's going to call himself and the other apostles as witness number one. And then next week, he's going to call the prophets from the Old Testament as witnesses who were looking ahead and predicting all of these things. So the false teachers are saying, dude, you don't need to listen to Peter. He's just making this stuff up. It's just cleverly devised stories that he's got for you. You don't need to listen to him. And Peter's going to say, oh, no, no. The stories that I'm telling you are not fables. They are not myths. I was there, and I saw it, and the prophets long ago spoke of these things. Bottom line for today, before we even get to the end of the message, I want you to know you can trust Pastor Peter. I want you to know you can trust the Bible. And I want you to beware of anyone who would lead you away from God's word. I want you to be aware of anyone who would even subtly lead you away from God's word, who would cause you to doubt it or question it. I would invite you to be aware of anyone who would dismiss God's word as out of date or irrelevant for modern living. I would invite you to be aware of anyone who says, I've got a new thing for you that's different from the old thing and it's better. I just want, I want us to hear those kind of things and immediately say, danger, danger, danger. Like, beware of that. We can trust the Bible. We can rest on the Bible. We can take it to the bank. God has spoken, and he's spoken to us in his word. So let's go to it now. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 18 is what we're going to look at today. Read it with me. 
God's word says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word through the apostles and the prophets. Help us in these moments together today to receive your word as authoritative. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see you. Open our eyes today to the sure and certain return of our Lord Jesus Christ and help us to live this day in light of that day. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so look at verse 6. In verse 6, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter here is referring to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he talks about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we do not need to think about his incarnation. We need to think about his glorious return, what we would call the second coming, what, what the New Testament uses. The word that the New Testament uses is parousia. That's the word, that's the Greek word behind the word coming in this text. And it's a word that is used technically in the New Testament only, always, ever, to refer to the second coming, the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gene Green outlines it like this when he says, The parousia of Christ is his royal and divine advent. It's a term that never refers to the incarnation, but rather to his coming at the end of the age. And probably as much as I wanted you to see that quote from Gene Green, I want you to see the list of scriptures that come after that quote. Places where that word is used to describe the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the age. So Peter here, in talking about this, is talking about the second coming of Christ. And the second coming of Christ is a thread that, that weaves throughout this second letter. right? Peter seems to have the return of Jesus on his mind a great deal throughout this letter. And he seemed to have it on his mind even throughout the first letter. The letter that we just finished studying, right? You may remember he talked about the end is near. Behold, the end of all things is at hand, right? So therefore, live this way. It's like Peter is living every moment in light of his own imminent departure, right? The end of his own life and the end of the age. Like he is living his life and ministering to these people in light of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to lean in and embrace the promise of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the promise of the return of Christ creates in us hope for the future, right? When we think about the return of Jesus, one of the things that happens in my heart is a reminder that it's not always going to be like this. I was just talking to a guy the other day who is, is not well physically, he's not feeling well, uh, he doesn't seem to be getting much better, and I said to him, it won't always be like this. And he immediately said, yeah, I think it is. I think it's always going to be like this. And I said, no, no, no. You know that it won't always be like this, that a better day is coming, an eternal day is coming. And he was like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course, of course I know that. Well, I'm telling you that that hope of a better day to come gets us through the hard days here, right? That's the way, that's the way Peter leveraged it in 1 Peter. 
when they were facing all this persecution and all this pain and the prospect of even more, he says, remember, it won't always be like this. Remember, the Lord Jesus will return and he will vindicate his people and he will destroy his enemies. That day is coming. So hang in there, church. So the promise of Christ's return creates in us hope for the future. It also creates in us an urgency in the present. If we live like the end is near, we will double down on the importance of trusting in Jesus, right? We, we will double down on the importance of being rightly related to the Father through faith in the Son. Because when that day comes, it comes in judgment, right? And if you are on the wrong side of Christ on that day, you'll be demolished. So in light of the promise of Christ's return, we want to live with urgent trust in Christ. We want to live our lives like our external living for him and for his glory. And we want to tell the world that there is salvation in no one else but the Lord Jesus Christ. And the time is short, so repent and believe today. That needs to be our message, right? We don't have time to waste. If we embrace the promise of Christ's return, it will create in us as his people a hope for the future and an urgency in the present. The false teachers, though, are denying the second coming. The false teachers that are invading the church that Peter is writing to, these people that he loves who are scattered all over the place, these false teachers are creeping up, and they're denying the second coming. Here, in this text, they dismiss it as cleverly devised tales. Some of your translations, you don't use the word myth or fable or story. They're basically saying to the people, the false teachers are, ah, oh, Peter's just making up a story. It's a great story, but it's just a story. It's not going to happen. We learn later on in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, if you want to turn there or look on the screen, they also deny the second coming by scoffing at it. Look at what, look at what happens in 2 Peter 3, verse 3. He says, know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Right? So in the text that we're looking at today, the false teachers are saying, oh, it's just a story that Peter has made up, a clever one, but it's just a story. And there they're saying, it, it, it can't possibly be true because nothing has ever changed. Everything just continues to go on. A uh, generation comes and a generation goes and nothing has ever changed. The second coming is not going to happen according to the false teachers. And here's their logic ultimately. And we're going to see this as we continue to study in 2 Peter. They say, number one, we will deny the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you deny the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, you also get to deny the final judgment. And if you deny the final judgment, then you can live however you want. That's the logic of the false teachers. Christ will not return. Because Christ will not return, there will not be final judgment. And because there will not be final judgment, you just do whatever you want. Do you see why this is popular? Do, do you see why this would be embraced by people? Do you see why Peter has to double down and say, no, 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 those guys are not telling you the truth. They're not telling you the truth. Christ will return and there will be judgment. And so you don't just get to live however you want. Peter is urgent with this message. But the message of the false teachers is catching on. Friends, I want you to know that Christ will return and he will judge the living and the dead. And we must, as his people, affirm this, not just with an amen, like I anticipated you saying amen when I said Christ will return. Amen. He will judge the living and the dead. Amen. 
We must affirm this with more than an amen, but rather with our lifestyle. Right, this truth of Christ's return, of final judgment, should impact how we live. And this is the link we tried to make at the end of last week. We're not just about scholastic remembering. We're not just about embracing and affirming facts. The question is, do you really believe that Jesus is coming back? Do you really believe this? And if you do, where's the proof? Where's the proof? Are you living as if we will give an account? Or are you living as if we will not? Are you living in accordance more with what the false teachers are saying than with what Pastor Peter is teaching? The proof of whether we really believe in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is in how we live. You see, what we believe always comes out in how we live. It's a really scary thing, and I want us to consider this. It's a really scary thing if we affirm the return of Christ mentally, if we affirm the reality of final judgment mentally, and yet we are willing to live like the false teachers who pursue the lusts of the flesh. That, that last part doesn't line up, does it? And we want our lives to line up. You know, in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, we've been talking about the importance of having our, our heads and our hearts and our hands in line. I think this is one of those places where we need to be really careful that that is the case. That we rightly understand the return of Christ, that we're rightly affected by the return of Christ, and we rightly live in light of the return of Christ. It's not just Peter that links the return of Christ with a call to holy living. I want you to see this. Not just Peter that says, Christ is returning, so live in holiness. Paul does it, and John does it as well. Look at Titus 2. Titus 2, starting in verse 11, says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Right? That's a call to holiness, right? Sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Do you catch what's going on there? It's like, this, it's like this obvious call to holiness, right? It's all throughout that passage, and it's kind of revolving around the blessed hope of his appearing, the promise of his return. So until that day comes, we live out this growth in godliness. We live out this growth in holiness as his redeemed people, as the ones who have been changed, as the ones who have been saved. We live this day in light of that day to come. John says it also in 1 John chapter 3. He says in verse 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. For such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And that this is it. This is where we want to stop and say, amen. Amen to that. I cannot wait for that. We don't like to read the next verse that says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Do you catch this? That the return of Christ is oftentimes used by the biblical writers as a motivation for holy living for God's people who have been redeemed. 
for God's people who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a motivation for sanctification. Because when he comes, he comes in judgment. And we want to be found faithful. And faith is on display in the way we live. So, Pastor Peter says in verse 6, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is asserting here that he's not been preaching myths and stories and fables. Rather, he has been proclaiming the very things that he saw with his own eyes. And this is what apostles do, right? This is, this is what the apostles do in the New Testament. They testify to what they have seen and heard. Watch in 1 Corinthians 15 as Paul, in a very familiar text, roots the resurrection in the eyewitness testimony of the early followers of Jesus. Right? You, you know this text because you've been here for the last eight Easter's and I've preached this text, right? But you might not have paid close attention as we move past the first importance part. And watch as Paul calls out the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And he says, this didn't happen off in a corner. These guys saw it, and this guy saw it, and this group of 500 saw it. It's rooted in the eyewitness testimony. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You're familiar with this part. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Hallelujah, right? And that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Hallelujah. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he has appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Right? I, probably, I probably could have stopped after he says, he appeared to me also. But that last part is so good, right? In fact, that very last part is so good when he says, whoever it was, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. This eyewitness testimony is super important for the gospel. That it's not a cleverly devised myth that was made up and spread around. No, these people saw these things and they had to testify of these things. And they gave their lives for this testimony, right? And this testimony has changed our lives. The power of God in the gospel has changed our lives as well. Eyewitness testimony matters. And Peter here, interestingly, is making reference to the transfiguration of Jesus. Right? So in defense of the second coming of Christ, he rewinds himself back to the Mount of Transfiguration. And we just studied this in Matthew's Gospel on Sunday nights. Like we're studying 2 Peter in here. We're studying minor prophets in small groups. We're studying Matthew on Sunday nights. And we are in chapter 17. In fact, it was just, what, three, four weeks ago that Pastor Dylan preached the Transfiguration in this very room. We saw the very story that Peter is referring to here. I'm thankful. I just want to take a minute and rejoice in how God lines us up as we study his word with discipline. He, he connects dots that we could never think to connect, that we would, we're never clever enough to connect all these dots. But he does this over and over, and he will do that in your life as well. If you've got 
Second Peter going on in here and minor prophets going on up there and Matthew on Sunday nights and whatever you've got going on in your daily Bible study. I'm telling you, that's a lot of dots on the page for the Lord to be connecting. And he does that because in the Bible, what we see is it's one book with one author and one message. And he's often bringing those things together for our good. This is just one more example of that. The transfiguration of Jesus is one of the few scenes that is described in all three of the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we refer to as the synoptic gospels because they, uh, that word means same view, same vision. They're kind of looking at things the same way. John is a little bit different. He's just kind of the oddball, the way he writes. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot in common, and they don't tell every story. And they don't tell every story the same way, but the transfiguration is one of those stories that they all three tell. And I want you to look at Matthew's account of it. But I want us to start just before the Mount of Transfiguration. At the end of chapter 16. In fact, turn there in your Bible if you want to. So that you can see that although we're going to move from Matthew 16 to Matthew 17, it's not like we turn a page and we skip a bunch. It's, it just rolls from one to the other. So at the end of Matthew 16, which I'll give you some context for in a little while, this is what Jesus says. Matthew 16, verse 28. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, when you read words like that, if, you, if, you just, if I just said that and you had never heard it before, your mind would immediately go to the return of Christ, right? If you've read anything in the Bible and you see Jesus talking about Son of Man coming in his kingdom, you're, you're going to think about the return of Christ. That's what's going to come up in your mind, right? And that's what Peter is talking about. It's what Peter is defending in 2 Peter. But look at what happens in Matthew's gospel as this unfolds. Read on in chapter 17, verse 1. Six days later, and, and all of the gospel writers link that statement, some statement like that about Jesus. Some of you are going to see the coming of the Son of Man before you taste death, and they just go, a few days later, the transfiguration happens. Read on in Matthew 17. Six days later, uh, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and they were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Now, I want you to know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell that story from a little bit different perspective, emphasizing a little bit different thing, but they all tell that same story, and it's all linked to this thing, you will see, you will see the Son of Man, right? And then there's this transfiguration. John, oddball John, tells the story a little, di a little bit differently. In chapter 1, verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I believe that that is John's Christmas story and transfiguration story. That's the way he tells the Christmas story, and that's the way he tells the transfiguration story. 
My question for you is, of all the stories to tell about Jesus in defense of the promise of his return, why does Peter go to the transfiguration? What, what, why, what is Peter doing here by referencing the Mount of Transfiguration in defense of the promise of his coming? I think there are two levels of it. One is Peter is establishing his authority in general. Not just about the second coming, but he is establishing his authority in general to speak as one who saw these things and heard these things, right? For all of Peter's teaching, that moment on the mountain serves, to, uh, serves as a foundation for his authority. It's a defense against the dismissal of the false teachers that Peter's making this stuff up. Peter is saying, no, 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 I was there. And Peter could have done that with a lot of other stories, right? He could have said, I was there on the mountain. I was there when he raised Jairus' daughter. I was there when he fed the multitudes. I was there when he walked on the water. I was there. I was there. I was there. I was there. I saw it. I walked with him. That's why it's good that you read from 1 John where he says, these are the things we've seen. These are the things we touched. We are talking about what we have seen and heard. Peter is an eyewitness testifier of these things, but he is also using the story of the transfiguration and his eyewitness testimony of it to reinforce the truthfulness of Christ's return. And that's a little more complicated. You're going to have to hang with me on this and think this through a little bit. Douglas Moo is super helpful. He gives us four points why the transfiguration is helpful to undergird the teaching of of the return of Christ. Number one, he says, the synoptic gospels preface the transfiguration narrative with Jesus' prediction that some of the apostles would not die before they saw the glory of the kingdom. Right? All of them, all three of them say that before they tell the story of the transfiguration. Number two, the synoptic evangelists usually use the word glory in connection with the parousia, the return of Christ. So similar glory that happens on the mountain is the glory that will come with the return of Christ. Do you remember this? His face is shining like the sun. His eyes are brilliant white. I mean, his clo- what did I say? His clothes are brilliant white, and there's a cloud, the glory cloud on the mountain. All of this is glory language. And when we talk about the return of Christ, we talk about the return of Christ with that same glory language. Number three, Moose says later Christian tradition connected Jesus' transfiguration with the parousia, with his triumphant return. Right? That's, that's a tradition thing. We don't put a lot of weight in that, but the early church was teaching it this way. The best one is this last one, though. He says, as its name suggests, the transfiguration involves a transformation in Jesus' appearance. But it's a transformation that reveals his true nature. It is this glorious and majestic nature, hidden, as it were, during his earthly life, that will be revealed to all the world at the time of his return. Put simply, the transfiguration reveals Jesus as the glorious king, and Peter was there to see it. As people walked with Jesus in his incarnation, they saw his humility. They saw his suffering, right? They saw his condescension. But Peter, James, and John on that mountain got a glimpse of the fullness of his glory, how he will be when he returns. And so they say, we got to pre- Peter says, you, want, you don't believe in the return of Jesus? You don't believe in it because he was so humble? You don't believe in it because he was so meek? You don't believe in it because he died on a cross? I'm telling you, I went up on a mountain and I saw it. I saw that glorious appearance and he will come again just like that. Peter, James, and John got an advanced screening, one scholar says, of the glory of Jesus, which, with which he will return to vindicate his people and destroy his enemies. Peter is affirming the promise of the parousia with the preview he got on that mountain. That's what's going on here. He's saying, he will return. It hasn't always gone just like it always went. 
There was a day we went up on the mountain and everything changed. We got a glimpse behind the curtain, and it was incredible. And he will come in the fullness of his glory like that one day. Read on in verse 17. For when he received glory and honor from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on that holy mountain. So Peter has talked first about what he saw. Now he's talking about what he heard. He wasn't just an eyewitness. He was also an ear witness. And we've talked about this before, right? But let me remind you that one does not become a witness by merely hearing or seeing something, right? From a biblical perspective, you are not a witness just because you saw something or you heard something. You only become a witness when you say what you saw or heard, when you testify, when you outwardly profess what you saw and heard. That's when you become a witness. And Peter was faithful to be a witness even when it costs him dearly. You know the story in Acts chapter 4, right? After Peter and John had healed a man who had never walked. And then they preached the gospel. And they spoke openly about the resurrection of the dead. And they got arrested. And they got beaten for it. You remember that story, right? And you remember how it ends. Look at chapter 4 of Acts verse 13. It says, now as they, that's the religious establishment, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Let's just stop there and say, oh, let that be said of us. Let that be said of us, that though we are uneducated and untrained, it is undeniable that we have been with Jesus. I hope that's the case. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any, any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Look at verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. That's a witness. One who cannot stop speaking about what they have seen or heard, even if it costs them dearly. In fact, the word for witness in the New Testament is the word for martyr in the English language. You speak of what you have seen and heard, and it may cost you your life. And Peter was willing to say it anyway. This statement from the father concerning the son is super important. We want to see the connection between the majestic glory, as the father is referred to here, and the majesty of Jesus in the previous verse. Right? We want to see this link between the father and the son. We want to see yet another affirmation of the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is God. It's one of the things that the false teachers evidently are teaching is that, oh, Jesus was maybe a special man. Ah, maybe he was a good prophet. Ah, maybe he was, he was a faithful teacher. No, no, no. He is God in the flesh. The Father affirms. Peter is essentially saying here, he's not just like any other man. He's not like any other man. We saw it. We've never seen that from any other man. We saw it. Jesus received honor and glory from the Father in a way that no one else on that mountain did. Let's think about the mountain of transfiguration for a minute. Right? Who, who is there? Well, Jesus is there. Peter, James, and John are there. 
Moses and Elijah are there. Let's just think about that for a second. Moses and Elijah are on that mountain. It would be hard to overstate the respect and reverence that first century Jews would have had for Moses and Elijah. These are like all-stars of the all-star game, right? These are the biggest in the world. And what does God the Father say about them? Nothing. Nothing. This mountain is not about them. In fact, this mountain is very much for them, right? Moses and Elijah, and I'm so thankful to Ligon Duncan in 1 Kings 19 for showing me this. Moses and Elijah didn't get what they wanted in this life. Moses didn't get to go to the promised land. Elijah didn't get to see revival amongst Israel. But that's not what they ultimately needed. What did they need? They needed to see Jesus. And they got to see Jesus on that mountain. It's not about them. It's not about them. Peter, James, and John are there. We think of Peter, James, and John similarly to the way first century Jews would have thought about Moses and Elijah. We see them as pillars of the faith. We see them as fathers of the church. They are our heroes. But the Father only speaks of Jesus this way. In fact, the Father only speaks of Jesus at all. And at the end of the day, who remains? Matthew just heaps on language to get our focus on Jesus at the very end. If you look back at Matthew chapter 17, verse 8. After they have fallen on their face, after he has touched them and said, don't be afraid, it's me, get up. It says, in lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Like, you could not have put more language to say, Jesus is the only one that matters on this mountain. Jesus is the only one that gets glory. Jesus is the only one that is affirmed by the Father. Jesus is the only one that matters. There's no one like him. Tom Schreiner says, What Peter features is the honor and glory given to Jesus at the transfiguration because such honor and glory look forward to and will be replicated at the second coming. Here's the lesson I want you to take away. There's no one like him. There is no one like him. There is no one like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we should trust in him for our salvation and we should worship him as God in the flesh. There's no one like him. No one can save you. No one worthy of our praise. Only Jesus. Let's remember Peter's journey to that mountain. If you rewind in your brain, Matthew chapter 17, you know that it starts with this scene where Jesus is with the disciples and he says, who do they say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah, right? Some say you're John the Baptist, one of the prophets, something like that. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And do you remember who speaks up? Good old Peter. You know, Peter, the author of our letter speaks up. And what's he say? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Like A plus for Peter in that moment. Gold star student for Peter. He says what no one else has said at this point. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right, a boy, Peter. But you didn't get this from flesh and blood. God gave that to you. And then, in the very next breath, Jesus begins to speak about his impending betrayal, arrest, crucifixion. And resurrection. And Peter steps in and says, no way. No way. I'm, ne- I'm not going to allow that to happen. That's never going to happen. God forbid it. That's what he says. God forbid it. And Jesus says, oh, get behind me, Satan. You don't have your mind fixed on God things. You've got your mind fixed on man things. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, <laughs> like star student, fail. Epic fail. Like you go, you go from top of the class to bottom of the class. Go sit in the corner, Peter. You have no idea what you're talking about. And he's corrected. By Jesus, right? And then 
he gets to this mountain. This is the guy that is teaching us these things. This is the guy that's reminding us of this. He is honest. He is honest about his failures so that we won't make those same failures. So that we will see Jesus for who he is. So that we will recognize that there is no one like him. And so we can trust him for our salvation. We can trust in Jesus for our salvation. We can worship Jesus as God in the flesh. Dick Lucas gives us a helpful note at the very end when he says the Bible is not the subjective record of a religious quest that we can supplement or challenge with our own experiences. God has spoken. That's my favorite part. God has spoken. Done. That settles it, right? You've heard people talk about the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, that whole thing. Wrong. The Bible says it, that settles it. That settles it, you better believe it. But that settles it. God has spoken. Indeed, he has spoken. And we can hear him speak to us every day. Every day we can hear him speak to us. As we read his word, as we study it, as we memorize it, meditate on it, we can hear him speaking because he has spoken. So for application today, I want us to spend a minute or the rest of our lives reflecting on what we learn about Jesus from this passage. It's always a good question to ask when Jesus is in the center of it. What do we learn about Jesus here? From this, these few verses, what do we learn about Jesus? Well, we learn that he's glorious. We learn that he's the son of God. We learn that he's coming back in judgment. We learn that there's no one else like him. And so therefore, we should trust in him for our salvation and we should worship him as God in the flesh. Application number two. First, what do we learn about Jesus? Number two, we gotta trust the message from the apostles. We have to trust the word of God. We have to trust the Bible. Jim Shattuck says, this text is a reminder that our faith isn't rooted in fairy tales and fiction. It's rooted in history. It's rooted in history. Peter, James, and John went up on that mountain and saw things that no one else has ever seen. People saw Jesus crucified. People saw Jesus alive after that. After he was buried, they saw him alive. 500 brothers at one time, some of whom are still alive today. Go ask them. They will tell you what they have seen and heard. Our faith is not rooted in fairy tales and fiction. But there are false teachers everywhere today. False teachers everywhere doing just what those guys in 2 Peter were doing. Saying, oh, it's just fable. It's just fiction. Oh, it's outdated. Oh, you don't need to really listen to it. You know where they learned that? They learned that from the snake. They learned that from the snake. This is all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right? These false teachers in the first century and these false teachers in the 21st century are doing what the original false teacher did in the garden. When he said, did God really say? You know what she should have said? Yep, he really said it. He really did. Oh, you won't really die. You can't really trust that. That snake said the same kind of things that false teachers are saying today. We need to be aware. We need to know what God has said. We need to be able to hear the voice of God in our lives. And you hear the voice of God not by going to a closet and shutting the door and putting on the right kind of music, not by starving yourself, not by crossing your legs and humming some certain tune. You hear the voice of God by taking up the book and reading. God has spoken, and we have, we have unprecedented access to the words he has spoken. Take up and read, study, 
We hear his voice in his word. He is speaking today. We've got to trust the message from the apostles. We've got to trust the word of God. We've got to trust the Bible in the face of false teachers. Number three, do we believe that Jesus is coming back? Not just scholastic affirmation. I think most of us in the room would say, is Jesus going to return? Yes. But that's got to change the way we live. It's got it's to sink deep into our heads and impact our hearts and come out through our hands. There would be indication that we believe that Jesus is coming back, that we would live with hope and we would live with urgency. And then the last thing, and this is something Pastor Dylan helped me see this week. He said, in the same way that Peter was able to tell about his experience with Jesus, we must tell about our experience with Jesus as well, right? We've got a story to tell where we saw him clearly. Do you remember that? Do you remember when you saw him? Do you remember when you heard from heaven? Do you remember when your ears and your eyes were open to the holiness of God? That you saw that he is not just a fluffy grandpa in the sky who just looks away every time you do wrong. When your eyes were open to the holiness and righteousness of God, that he must punish sin. Do you remember when your eyes were open to your own sinfulness? When you, when you realize that you're not good? That you're really bad deep down and that you deserve judgment from the holy God? Do you remember that? Do you remember when your eyes were open to the holiness of God and your own sinfulness and the great divide that separated you two? Do you remember when your eyes were open to Christ on the cross in your place? Not just this, this uh, like, uh, very universal Christ died for sinners, but do you remember when your eyes were open to Christ dying for you? That you saw your own sin on his shoulders and him dying the death that you deserve? Do you remember when your eyes were open to that? Do you remember when he gave you faith? to trust in Jesus Christ, to rest your whole weight on him? Do you remember when he gave you repentance to walk away from your old life of sin and walk toward him in holiness? Do you remember when that happened? That's like a mountain of transfiguration experience, right? We've got a story to tell, and it's rooted in the Bible. Tell them how you experience the saving grace of God, the life-changing power of the gospel. We have a story to tell about our experience with Jesus. Do you have a story? Do you have that story? That's maybe the first question, right? How could you tell them the story if you don't have a story like that? Today can be the day. Today can be the day when your life changes. The other question is, who's hearing your story? If you've got a story, who's hearing it? No one if you don't open your mouth. No one will hear that from you if you don't open your mouth. Proclaim the gospel. Tell them, I was dead. Listen, I got a crazy story to tell you. I was dead. Now I'm alive. Jesus did it. And go from there and talk to them about the hope that is found in Christ alone. Let's stand together and pray. Oh, Father, help us to see Jesus clearly in this text, to recognize his glory, to recognize his deity to recognize his sure return. Help us to say in our hearts, there is no one like him. Give us faith to trust in him and give us a right response of worshiping him. Father, we, we don't want to be mere students. We want to be disciples.
We want to be followers. Pray that you will work these truths into our heads and down into our hearts and then out through our lives, that there would be an alignment of our total being in submission to Christ. God, we pray as we leave this place that you will open our mouths in proclamation of the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we will be saying to the nations and to our neighbors, repent and believe there is hope in Christ alone. Open our mouths, Lord, in praise and in proclamation. God, we pray for men and women and boys and girls gathered among us who don't have a story to tell. God, give them a story today. Reach down in your power and open their eyes to your holiness. Open their eyes to their sinfulness. Open their eyes to Christ on the cross in their place. Give them faith. Give them repentance and save them for your glory. Raise them from the dead and use them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray in Christ's name.